Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. I'm your host, Mike Anderson, and I have a very special guest with me today, CJ Buck of Buck Knives. How are you doing today? Mike, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. All right. It's great to have you here. So we're at Shields University right now, Hunting University, where we are training our experts to be experts in the field, you know, learning more about all the products so we can uh, so we can best serve customers. So uh, we get the pleasure of listening to you speak tonight. Can you uh, can you dive a little bit into what we're going to hear? Uh, sure. Um, first off, I'm going to walk everybody through kind of our family company history. So the beautiful thing and the terrible thing about a family business is family. So there's lots of interactions, lots of uh, just scenarios that have come through. So tonight I'm going to talk about some actual miracles that took place in my grandfather's life, talk a little bit about why uh, we hold ourselves as a as kind of a Christian company and put a, a Christian testimony in every box uh, that we put out. Uh, talk a little bit about the family dynamics because we are a fifth generation family-held business. I am generation four, starting with my great-grandfather, and my son is now uh, involved with the business. He's our, uh, I tease him about being the master of the universe, but he is our master scheduler so we, we rise and fall based upon the production signals that he sends. Great to hear. A very strong company and uh, continuing generation after generation. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of Buck Knives. Um, how, how did it originally start? Okay, so my great-grandfather, Hoyt Heath Buck, H.H. H. Buck, he was living in Leavenworth, Kansas as a teenager, working as an apprentice blacksmith and he would take the worn down files that were being discarded he would soften them so he would anneal them using heat and he would make knives out of them so the the when you think about a file it's been over hardened so that it can cut steel it can shape horseshoes and wagon wheels and whatever else they were working on at the turn of the century. <clears throat> so he would take those worn-out files, and, and by making them a little softer, they would make excellent knives because by softening them, and I, and I could do a whole spiel here on heat treat, uh, <clears throat> when you're heat treating knives, you're trying to balance a few attributes. You want the knife hard enough to hold an edge, soft enough not to be brittle, and you want it to resist corrosion. So that when you think about a file, a file is a high-carbon tool steel, and a high-carbon steel can be harder without being brittle. But if you harden it too hard, it's brittle. So a file hardened hard enough to cut steel, was too brittle to be a knife. So my grandfather, using just heat, using his eyesight color, he would heat, he would heat these files to a specific color 
They also had a certain smell. So he would, by using his own physical senses, he experimented with how to heat treat, how to anneal these files to get the best combination of hard enough to hold an edge, soft enough not to be brittle. Because a knife doesn't do you any good if it breaks in half. So you want it to, you want it to hold that edge. So he made knives. So this is a turn of the century, 1902. So he made knives in that little blacksmith shop for four or five years before relocating to the Pacific Northwest. He, got, he married and raised his family just north of Seattle, Washington, out in the woods. My, he, had, uh, he had seven kids. He had three girls, four boys. My grandfather, Al, was the oldest of the four boys. My grandfather moved down to San Diego. <clears throat> Sorry. My grandfather moved down to San Diego, joined the Navy, and fell in love with the San Diego area and located there and raised his family in San Diego. Meanwhile, Hoyt and my great-grandmother Daisy ended up retiring, moving to Mountain Home, Idaho, pastoring a church in Mountain Home, Idaho in the mid-40s when their health started to fail. They relocated from Mountain Home, Idaho down to San Diego, moved into a plumbing-free shack in my grandfather's backyard. My grandfather was a bus driver in San Diego, raising four kids in the mid-40s. His parents come move in with him. They build a 10-by-10 lean-to up against the side of his garage, and my great-grandfather starts trying to just help the family make ends meet by making knives in this little 10-by-10 lean-to. So my great-granddad would, would, would walk through the neighborhood collecting knives to sharpen. He would sharpen knives, and he would make new ones. So that was, And then he taught his son, Al, so he taught my grandfather how to make knives. So they were H.H. Buck and Son lifetime knives. Their value proposition was... This is the only knife you'll ever need for your entire life. If you ever have a problem with it, bring it back. We'll fix it. We'll replace it. We'll take care of you. We'll give you your money. Whatever it takes, that warranty, that lifetime warranty was thus a lifetime knife. So it was H.H. Buck and Son lifetime knives. My great-grandfather passed away in 49, so he and Al really only worked together for a couple years, two or three years at the most before my great-granddad passed away. And so my grandfather, uh, his two sons, my father and my uncle, and his brother-in-law, Chuck Shapter, my grandmother's younger brother, the four of them did the buck knife mower and saw works. And, and so what's funny is that, so this is back in the 50s, so probably around the mid-50s, once my father got his driver's license, he was the delivery guy for the Sears Craftsman Lawnmower Repair Service. So he would, if you, if you brought your lawnmower into the San Diego Sears and dropped it off for repair, my father would pick it up in the company truck, take it back to the shop, tune it up, sharpen the blades, and take it back to uh, Sears. Anyway, <laughs> it's just kind of, it's kind of funny, those, those, those stories. So we incorporated, so all through the 50s, it was the four of them making knives, probably making, I don't know, 25 to 30 knives a week and selling them either by ad in sporting goods magazines 
or they had a little showroom right there in San Diego. We incorporated in 1961 with 12 people. My grandfather uh, participated in the church choir. He also drove the church, the Sunday school bus, being a bus driver. <clears throat> so he was very involved with the church. And his, his pastor introduced him to two people in the choir who were both, um, both heavily involved in, uh, in the San Diego defense contracting businesses, two different major companies. So when you talk about state-of-the-art manufacturing expertise, San Diego was really an incredible place. When you have the Marine Corps, you have the Navy situated right there in San Diego, you were getting the cream of the crop of people from all over the United States who were coming out there to join the military and staying because they would fall in love with uh, San Diego is, is, is about the most perfect weather that exists on the planet. Uh, it's very low humidity, very low, you know, minimal temperature extremes. The winters aren't that cold. Summers aren't that hot. There's no humidity ever. There's really no bug. I mean, it's just such an amazing place climate-wise. So a lot of these people would come from all over the United States, get out of the military, and stay. So we had a great labor pool. We also had all this expertise. So these people would come, would also be brought in executives to run these defense contractor businesses. And my grandfather was able to tap into a few of them. So we ended up with an excellent workforce, state-of-the-art engineering and, uh, and management, and excellent marketing to introduce this fledgling company. Mm -hmm. So basically, you had a perfect storm in the San Diego It was area. just a wonderful place. And it's such a conservative town because the military, those, those, the work ethics and the, 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 the best of the best from the, the, all the flyover states mm -hmm. were locating into San Diego. Okay, so now you're in Idaho, correct? Yes, sir. Can you talk a little bit about what, uh, what brought upon the move to Idaho? So if you... We were in San Diego for 60 years. So when you talk about uh, 1945 to 2005, so we, we were in San Diego for 60 years, and California became a difficult place to run a manufacturing business. Uh, there, were three, there were three key areas that were impacting us, and that was uh, wages, utilities, and workers comp. And I'll touch on workers comp the most because that's kind of the, that's what the state itself has the most control over. So in Idaho, when you get hurt, you go home, you get better, you come back to work. That seems pretty simple, I know. In California, you get hurt on the job, you go home, there's hearings, you come back for a little while. You're not quite happy with being back. There's another hearing. You go back home. Something could stretch months and involve attorneys and hearings and filings. And it's just so needlessly complicated that the, the process itself absorbs an enormous amount of resources. So 
California had the honor of being one of the highest, not the highest, but close to the highest workers' comp insurance premium and the absolute lowest in dollars going to an actual injured employee. The process aided all. So we had, from a utility standpoint and, and power shortages, which we will not tolerate as a production facility, you can't tolerate that. So from a utility standpoint, from a workers' comp standpoint, uh, our move to Idaho was critical. We also wanted to manufacture in the, in the U.S. So in 2001, we were working really hard to cut expenses and try and make ourselves successful while staying in San Diego, <clears throat> when the when the uh, when the twin towers came down in New York, when uh, 9/11, 2001, when you pull the wheels off a of fourth quarter, you decimate sporting goods, hunting, Christmas. We are very seasonal. We do a lot of sales in that back portion of the year. You pull that off the table, it kills us as a business. So we had we we had a, what one board member called a a come to Jesus meeting. Uh, we had a serious meeting about the future of our company and decided that we needed to do a couple of major shifts if we were going to continue to manufacture in the United States. We had to adopt the Toyota production system, which we've done to the best of our ability, and we had to relocate out of California. We were giving our competition a 20-plus percent cost advantage over us just by being located in California. So we chose Idaho. We, we shut our business down in 2004 and moved it to Idaho. We started making knives in Idaho in February 2005. We've been there 15 years, and based upon just everything that's happened over the last six months with this COVID quarantine, really, really happy we're, uh, we're out in rural Idaho. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a great thing to be American made right now. You don't have to worry about shipping overseas. Yeah, you know, we have we have greater control over our quality. We have been able to internalize a number of processes that we used to outsource. Uh, like Cerakote is a is an internal process. It's a it's a baked on paint coating using a ceramic based paint. It's a, it's an excellent process. We've insourced that. We've insourced a lot of CNC machining. All, things we used to uh, we used to have to get vendors to do for us, and you always struggle with controlling that, that quality. You bring that internally. One, you don't have to build something you don't need, but two, you have control over that quality. And some of the knives that we're making now, the, the newer locking mechanisms have much finer requirements in order to function properly and the ability to to have more control over the manufacturing of the parts is crucial to how well those knives go together in assembly and how they function for customers and when you when you warranty something for forever it really matters how things function for customers if there's any problem it we just get to we just to get it we get it back so we we we're very careful putting out the best product we can. 
Perfect. And you guys put out an incredible product. So up to this point, what has been your biggest struggle or challenge with buck knives? It's been the, it's been, it's been customers understanding of value or perception of value. So when you think about what goes into the manufacturing of a hard good, uh, of an actual product, uh, it's, it's, it's people, it's the processes you follow, and it's the materials. So you've got, you've got those three elements, and none of those elements are becoming less expensive. Everything is only becoming more expensive. People are becoming more expensive, the materials themselves are upgrading and and becoming more expensive. The fuel to create these things is all becoming more expensive. Maybe not now <laughs> for, for a little while, but but it's going to be right back to where it was. Mm-hmm. And so inflation is real, and you can only absorb so much of that through efficiency. And at some point, it just costs you more to build stuff than it did 20 years ago. What we're being impacted with is now customer perceptions where they're used to import products that look fine and cost a fraction of what an American-made product actually costs to build. And, and that's been the biggest challenge, to, to protect the manufacturing in the U.S., is a is a consumer understanding and so what we're what we're trying to do is it's always going to cost more to buy an american-made product versus an import product so what we're trying to do is build enough design nuance and functionality into the product how we heat treat we are going to give you a knife blade that will hold an edge longer than anything you could ever import. We're going to optimize how the, the steels function. We're going to look at the at uh, how the knife deploys and how it's going to be designed, how it feels in your hand, and, and try and give you value kind of based from our own passion and our expertise because we're never going to win the battle on price. We're going to win that battle on functionality and value. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have such a long-standing relationship with you guys is we just have the same, the same ideals. You know, when, you, when you're interacting with a customer and you're really trying to understand how they're going to use your product so that you can help them determine the best product choice... When you have that empathy for a customer, it really does drive a lot of your product decisions and how you approach it. And yes, and we really enjoy partnering with retailers who, retailers who understand that. Uh, that because if, if we have a complicated story to tell that's not going to be told on a clam card, it, it needs to be told in person and you need, to, you need to put a knife in somebody's hand and let them try one and let them try another 
you know, other than if you're just going to buy something on price, if you're really going to understand the value of a product, you need that, that interaction with an expert, mm -hmm. uh, somebody to bounce. You need a, a YouTube video or you need somebody walking you through the details of what you can do with this knife or why that steel matters or, or why it's worth the extra upcharge. You, it, that's just hard to get without educating yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly why we're at university right now is to educate everybody about the, about the importances of what you've just spoken on. Yeah. Oh, I'm, uh, and I'm, I hope you can tell I'm passionate about that. I, I, uh, I do a lot of consumer shows. Mm -hmm. So we, as a company and myself personally, am very involved in conservation. So attending the NRA annual meeting or attending the Mule Deer uh, Foundation's annual meetings and interacting with those consumers, Safari Club, interacting with those consumers, I just, I love doing that because I, I really enjoy helping people understand why that's worth the money for you. Or, you know what, you, you really don't need that. You, this one will be fine because you're going to get more value out of this than, than, than the upkeep required for that more complicated version. Anyway, I love helping people understand why one product might be a better choice for them than another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say there's nobody that's doubting your passions. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, so you're, you're a fourth generation. Has there ever been a time in your life where you thought maybe you wouldn't be doing this? Uh, you know, it's funny. So I have, a, uh, I have a story that my mother loves to tell. And it's she came to my first grade class. I don't remember it. This is her story. Um, so she came, she attended my first grade class and it was some career day scenario. And so all these kids all excited, they were going to grow up to be an astronaut or a policeman or a fireman, as most kids back in the mid sixties were, were talking about. And she said, when it was my turn to stand up, I stood up and in kind of a dejected tone said, well, so imagine I'm probably six. Uh, my, my grandpa runs a knife company, my dad's going to run a knife company, and I guess someday I'm going to run a knife company. <laughs> and she, she said I said that in a dejected tone, and the, and, the, and the parents in the back of the room chuckled. Uh, but no, I have come to thoroughly enjoy uh, what I do. I love being in the knife business. I love making a product that so connects with people personally it was their grandpa's knife and it's been passed down through multiple generations or this is the knife that got them through some military service and it and came back to them or this is a knife they got when they graduated high school and it's been meaningful ever since or this has been the knife they've hunted with for 20 years and they couldn't even imagine getting out to deer camp without it that type of connection is not available in other industries mm -hmm. uh, or other products. So, so even though the the you know, the margins in the knife business are not exceptional, and and it is a discretionary product, you can you can live by biting stuff with your teeth if you have to. 
but yet I love being in an industry where we connect with people like we do. It's, mm -hmm. it, it just, it floats my boat big time. Yeah. You have, you have such a rich history and, um, I'd have to say one of my earliest deer camp memories is actually of one of your buck knives. So, um, you know, we were, we were back in the skinning shop and, um, and my uncle had shot a deer that night and, um, I had never seen the skinning process before I was fascinated and, and he, he grabbed one of the buck knives and just started going to town. And uh, I was just amazed at how, how quickly he went through everything. Just like he, he'd known how to do it forever. And then he finished with his deer and then just kind of tossed a knife into a, into a support pole. And I remember just seeing that there and that memory is just etched into my, yeah <laughs> into myself. And I just, I wish I would have had a camera at that point. Cause like being a social media guy, it's like, Oh, that's the exact picture <laughs> that I want to have captured that whole thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I could just go back in time and capture that memory. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, speaking of other memories, so I, uh, you know, I was browsing a little bit on your website and I ran into a fascinating story about the ranger knife. Can you touch a little bit on that? Okay, so uh, <clears throat> we we introduced the 110 Folding Hunter in 1964. So now fast forward eight, eight or so years and now we're into the early 70s and the... The 110 has now been involved in a couple of sailor altercations on some of the local naval vessels. So there's a there's a uh, a ruling that comes down that knives with blades over three inches are not allowed to be carried on board. Thus, our 110, which was being highly sought after when when all when these boats would come in and dock in San Diego and they'd stay they'd be positioned there for six months or three months or you know however the Navy was doing things we were a local vendor right there in San Diego so it was it was very popular for these guys to buy their buck folding hunters so when they became illegal with a four inch blade and a three inch limit my grandfather reinvented the 110 with a two and seven eighths inch blade. So just coming in under that three inch limit. And the USS Ranger, which happened to be stationed in Long Beach right at that time, became the perfect namesake for this smaller version of the 110 folding hunter. So we had the 110 Folding Hunter, and now we had the 112 Ranger. Uh, and so that, <clears throat> I, I want to say it was 73, 74, somewhere, somewhere in there. One of our collectors club will, uh, will correct me, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, early 70s, that's the, that's the story of the 112 Ranger. And so is that knife sitting in a historic place right now? or? Oh, well, that prompts another story. That uh, um, and it, it so this is early seventies. I'm probably thirteen or fourteen years old, and I'm going skin diving with some friends in Mission Beach Jetty. Yeah, so I I open up the junk drawer in the kitchen, thumb through, see a, a folding knife, and 
drop it into the pocket of my bathing suit. And off I go, friends pick me up, off we go to the beach, skin dive all day, do a little spearfishing. Somewhere during that day, I lose that knife. It falls out of my pocket. Don't think anything of it. It was in the junk drawer. Come home. So fast forward three, four months later, and there's my father thumbing through that junk drawer. And I'm just sitting in the kitchen. I don't know why. And my mom is, is there doing something. And my dad's thumbing through that drawer, got his back to me. And he stops. He goes, has anybody seen that folding knife that used to be, that was in this drawer? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I took it. I took it out of skin diving, lost it. And he whips around and he's glowering and, and, uh, and I'm, it's, it's taking me back a little bit. And he said, that was the prototype for the 112 Ranger. <laughs> I don't even think he named it then because it, 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 uh, uh, it may not have even been named then, but that was the prototype. And then, and then, and then, and so he's still kind of puffed up as only dads can do when you've done something really stupid and they're standing in front of you. And my mother goes, well, Chuck, it was in the junk drawer. And my dad took a big deep breath and just kind of deflated and walked out. <laughs> so there's another one where mom was there for me. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. That's and I'm just... standing here alive to tell you about it because mm -hmm. mom was there for me. Oh, and that's just something everyone can relate to. Like <laughs> just those coming to Jesus moments oh. with your dad. Well, you know, you, you think about how, I mean, that knife would be on a pedestal in a, in our museum. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, as a kid, as a teenager, you have no idea. You have no sense of legacy then. You haven't had enough history to appreciate something and what it's going to mean to you two or three times your lifespan from now. Like it, you just, you just have no, mm -hmm. no way to gauge that. And so, yeah, I had lost something really precious being really stupid for no reason. <laughs> and, and my father had to let it go because he had left that in the kitchen junk drawer mm -hmm. when it should have been in a safe. Yeah. You may have lost a piece of history, but you've gained an unforgettable memory. We did, get, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, um, all right, well, let's talk a little bit about hunting knives. Like, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you look for in the perfect hunting knife? Um, that's a very complicated question, and, it, and, it, and there is no one right answer. Thus, we make lots of different knives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> so it, it, you're always balancing uh, cost and benefit. And so when I say cost, every time you put ounces of weight into your pack, there's a cost to that. So you're determining how heavy is this thing I want to carry? How do I want it to deploy? Do I want it to be one-hand operating? Do I care... Do I want it to be in a sheath? Am I going to wear it on my belt? Am I going to slip something in my pack? I will say for me, I don't like anything on my belt. If you're, if you're crawling through brush or, or wedging through uh, trees and branches, I just, I don't like anything on my belt. So for the most part, everything is in my pack. Uh, <clears throat> so the other element is are you going to have a fixed versus a folder? 
So when you think about folding knives, and just as you envision a folding knife in your head, when that knife is closed, that blade is completely safe, locked inside the handle of the knife. You can fall on it all day long, and it will never cut you because it's, it's completely enclosed in that handle. When you think about a fixed blade knife, it's possible that if you fall, if you roll down a hill, it's possible that that knife would be able to impale you somehow as you're rolling, tumbling. And we all know when, when you're in hunting environments, uh, you're, you're walking and crawling into places that no sane person would because you're on a mission. Absolutely. And, and you're not always paying attention to the ground cover or what's going on or how far you fall if you lose your footing. You, you get so mission-focused. And so if when you're thinking about that, and everybody hunts differently. I mean, some of these backcountry guys that just bivouac back into the middles of nowhere and, and spend multiple nights with nothing but a blanket and a, you know, and some salt, you go, okay, that's, everybody's, depending upon how you hunt and how you're going to push yourself, you, you could be in a really unsafe place. So you might, for you, a folder might be a better choice versus a fixed blade. If you are someone who is rarely farther than a half mile from the car, you could carry something bigger and heavier because you're just not spending yourself carrying something. So, so based upon your own circumstances, there's, there really is no right or wrong answer. For me, I like a fixed blade because I like to know that as I'm pushing, prying, maybe you're awkward. I mean, when you get an elk down, and I don't know if you've ever elk hunted versus deer hunted, but but when you get an elk down, it's gigantic. You're not whipping it around like you would think about with a deer. It's a whole different environment. You're, you're, you're cleaning a small Volkswagen car. <laughs> so, um, and moose, I, I've never shot a moose, but, but they're just, they're huge. And so when you're pushing, prying, trying to break these things down into smaller pieces that you can pack out, uh, you know, that knife has to handle, it's a tool. It's more than just cutting. I mean, it, it's a bit of your pry bar. It's a bit of your, it's a bit of a, a cutting tool. And so I prefer a fixed blade knife. We, we make a knife called the 692 Vanguard that I, that I just really like. It's a, it's a simple drop point rubber handle, um, just no frills, and it, and it gets it done. Um, so the, you know, blade shape, there's lots of different personal preference aspects of, do you like a long blade, short blade? Do you like the knife to fit almost into your hand where there's only an inch or two extending a blade based on how you're holding it? Do, do you want a five inch blade? Do you, do you want more depth? A lot of those are personal preferences. Me, it's, it's a, it's a mid-size fixed blade knife would be my, with a non-slip handle mm -hmm. is, is my choice. 
Yeah, there's just so much variability that goes into that question. So I kind of just <laughs> tossed you, it on you. But which, yeah, that's but, why which, you have such a great variety. In see, and we, talk, we talked earlier that that's the fun part of sitting with a customer and, and walking somebody through, how do you hunt? What are you going to do with this? How do you want to carry it? Where, what are you going to do? I, to me, that's a fascinating, every customer experience, every interaction is just a fun fascinating exploration into how they hunt and which product would best suit them for how they yeah. hunt. Yeah. The more you learn about a person, then the more you can put them into the perfect knife. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. That, it makes it fun. Absolutely. Never gets old. <laughs> All right. Well, CJ, I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming to hunting university here. No, it was an honor. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.